Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Derek2010 at Retail Revolt, Brian H., and Jared W. Our new guest on the show today is Roger Lemate. Roger is President, CEO, and Director of UEX Corp., a uranium-focused company with various stage exploration projects across the Athabasca Basin. The company is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol UEX and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol UEXCF. Roger, good to have you on the show. Very much appreciate you having me. Well, Roger, why don't you start off by telling us uh, some on your background and past experience in the natural resource sector? Well, sure. I'm uh, an engineer and geologist by training. Uh, I've got about, this year will be the 30th year I've been involved in the business. My first 10 years, mostly in copper, zinc, gold. I worked at uh, Hemlo Gold Mines for a short period of time. I worked with, uh, I think my claim to fame is every single major Canadian mining company that ever existed that I've worked for has been taken out with the exception of Camago. Uh, I got into the uranium sector in 2001. Uh, with Cameco, like uh, I've been back and forth between the juniors and the and the majors for for my entire career. Uh, I spent 12 years at Cameco. Started off on an exploration team that was involved in the uh, Eagle Point uh, extension discoveries that were were done there on our first year and a bit of my time at uh, Cameco. Uh, eventually, they put me into a role as managing exploration their Saskatchewan exploration portfolio, uh, where I looked at uh, involved in leading teams that uh, made a few other discoveries in the basin for Cameco at the time in between 2006 and 2008. And then uh, they moved me into a global sort of oversight of the global exploration portfolio operations side of things. In between that period, those periods of time, I also worked with their uh, mergers and acquisitions group. Uh, who looking, so we were looking at all the opportunities that were out there in the last uranium boom. So uh, after I left Cameco uh, in 2012, I spent a short time working for an aimless junior company before I joined UX in uh, in 2014. And I've been uh, the, the CEO of UX ever since then, uh, managing our portfolio of uh, our huge portfolio of projects across the Athabasca Basin. Appreciate that, and I assume you still know some folks over at Cameco. Talk to us about the history of UEX going back to the last cycle, leading up to when you actually came on board, as you stated there in 2014. Well, sure. I think our founding CEO, Steve Sorensen, uh, got interested in the uranium sector pre-UEX with with one of the companies that was involved in forming us, uh, Pioneer Metals, back in, in 1999. And by 2001, uh, he was very adamant that the uranium sector was going to, the fundamentals were out of whack and that the supply demand was out of whack. And he he teamed up with Cameco uh, to form UEX uh, back in October of 2001. We got listed in early 2002 uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And the, the prem, when, so Pioneer Metals gave up a bunch of their exploration assets that they had bended into. And Cameco gave up uh, what's called the Hidden Bay property, which is now we split into three parts, our Horseshoe Raven, Hidden Bay, and uh, and West Bear projects. And 
for the first couple of years, it was a little bit difficult. Uh, the market hadn't moved as, as sort of forecasted, and there was no junior uranium space. I mean, there was Denison, there was Paladin, and there was us. And we were the newest guys on the block and just struggling to stay alive. And uh, Mr. Sorensen managed to talk to what is now Orano, but at the time was called Kojima, uh, who was operating the Clough Lake mine, and they had a huge land package south of Clough Lake. And they managed to get involved in joint venture earning uh, opportunity uh, in 2003 for a huge land package that includes our current uh, Shea Creek uh, deposits. Uh, and for, I think it was a five or six year earning for $30 million, which at the time looked like an absolutely crazy deal. And probably as little as nine months later, looked like the best deal ever made uh, because the market changed pretty quickly in 2004 or five. And with the discovery of, of the Shea Creek deposits, uh, UX, uh, Went from being a quarter, uh, 25 cents on the, on the Toronto Stock Exchange, up to almost nine dollars uh, at one point in time, and, and a market valuation of over 900 million dollars. Um, then uh, we saw the global financial crisis hit, uh, and money was pulled out of all sort of speculative stock resource sector areas, and uh, then followed up with, with Fukushima. And around just around that time, Mr. Sorensen uh, left the company. And being well cashed up, we sat for a while uh, as a company uh, looking, waiting to sort of wait things out. And by the time I came on board in, in 2014, while we were still working at Shea Creek and moving that forward, it was at a, the pace started to slow down. In 2014, when I came on board, they were looking for an opportunity to to sort of find someone at the, the group that would move some of the projects forward and look at global opportunities out there. And that's what my background uh, and, you know, honestly, Equator in the early days of UX, when uh, in 2002, and 2003, 4, 5, um, there was no uranium junior sector out there. So the expertise was pretty small. And part of the deal with UX's formation was providing some technical expertise in the field. And I was one of the people who was submitted uh, to our work at Rabbit Lake, seconded to, uh, to do some work for UX. So I was very familiar with some of their properties and being familiar with the, the space and the opportunities out there was just a naturally uh, good opportunity for both UX and for myself. Since then, uh, we've been, you know, our, our sort of mantra is to, is to control what we can control. We can't control uranium markets. We can't control uh, things that, uh, that are being, how uranium is going to trade. Uh, but we can control what we do have in our, in our portfolio. So we've managed to, well, we have looked at tons of opportunities, and we've actually acquired one with our acquisition of the Christie Lake project in, in late 2015, early 2016. We've just said, well, well, we know that we have a bunch of projects. We have you know, 18 projects in our portfolio. There are two that are ready to be moved into that development stage, uh, Shea Creek and our Horseshoe Raven project, but the market's not quite ready for that yet. We have a huge portfolio of projects, but I think what's our strength and what we've been trying to focus on the last few years is what I call mid-stage development projects. And, and our goal is really to sit there and say, okay, let's make the next discoveries, uh, but, use it, but do so on the really sort of lower risk portfolio in the best jurisdictions that uh, that are sitting at low cost half. So our portfolio of opportunities, well, we have probably about 14 early stage projects that would be as good as any of the early stage projects anybody has out there. The projects like our Christie Lake or Hayden Bay, our, um, our West Bear projects, uh, uh, we're sitting on minimized holes that have yet to be followed up. Uh, hot operation zones that have yet to be followed up based on a long history of work looking for the new style of deposits that we're seeing in the basin. Uh, in the basement that our team has had a big involvement in at Eagle Point in Millennium. 
so kind of what we're trying to do we believe firmly that while the, when the market does recover production companies and and late stage development companies will move up and down with the price with some sort of premium attached to it our experience in the early days of the last run and the experience of others since then is that new discoveries create better value for shareholders regardless whether we're in an upswing rainy market, flat market, or a downswing market. And so we're going to focus short term to medium term on making those next discoveries and growing the number of resources we have in our pocket. With global opportunities, you guys have quite a few projects in your portfolio already and they're all in Athabasca Basin. Is there any desire at this point to go outside of the basin? Will you stay within Canada or are you looking beyond that? Uh, we've certainly looked at opportunities in the U.S., uh, Western United States, and in Australia. But our view is, you know, fortunately, the best invested in jurisdictions happen to be some of the best uranium jurisdictions, the Athabasca, the Western United States, and Australia. And we continue to look at all those kinds of opportunities. Um, it's it's harder in some of the other jurisdictions. you got to stay in a low. you, you got to try to keep yourself in that low-cost half to be a viable operation uh, if you were to find something to develop. If you're in the higher cost jurisdictions, you, you're you at the women, women of the markets. And we've seen in the, the latest downtown how hard it is, even for the lowest cost producers to stay in, in production, be it in Canada, be it in the United States, and even in Kazakhstan, things are, are tight. Uh, and if you can't play in those, those areas, it's a much harder place, uh, a harder industry to, to be involved in. So we've stayed away from the higher risk uh, jurisdictions that tend to be the higher cost. And tell us about your time at London listed URU Metals, and and why did you end up leaving your post there? Well, short was a couple of years there. Uh, I came on board because they were looking at moving uh, a couple of projects forward and bringing a, a a couple of really interesting nickel projects in South Africa uh, to the TSX, and then unfortunately it didn't happen. And we looked at an opportunity uh, for a uranium project in Sweden and in, in uh, the Northwest Territories. And quite frankly, uh, we had a, a major shareholder that was that was just taking you know, bigger and bigger control of the company, and we just were going in different directions. So it was the right time to live. Well, let's get over to the uranium market, Roger. Just briefly, your thoughts on recent sector events, and are these events the final pieces in your view needed to get sustained higher prices from here? Uh, I think it's possible. And I think it's, if it isn't possible, it's this first step. Maybe it's the end of the beginning of that process. Um, if you go back to the last cycle, uh, we saw several small supply shocks before the big one that happened in October of, 20, of 2006, cigar-like flood. Uh, but there was trick, there was incidents along the way. Uh, and what it always, uh, what always occurs to me about space uh, between the three sort of primary players, your producers, your your supplier, or your, your your intermediaries and speculators, and then utilities. Um, and it's it, it just, I've been saying for the last year, it smells so much like 2005 all over again, is this wide differencing of opinion between where you sit in space as to what the market realities may or may not be. And none of the parties are right. If we are, if one of them's right, they wouldn't be working. They'd be sitting on a beach somewhere, uh, texting in their trades. But quite frankly, uh, what happened in 2006, and I recall it intimately well because I was at uh, in Quebec City on the day of the Sierra Lake flood in October 2006, uh, giving a presentation to the Nuclear Energy Institute about this emerging uranium junior sector and how it was going to be important to see sustained prices to keep things going. And I had a lot 
uh, uh, for the entire industry, not just for the junior sector, of course. And what intrigued me, and I think what shocked me, was my sort of my first time spending time touching and interacting with utility uh, purchasers and the severe anger that was involved from their end about so it was it was kind of like they got whacked with a baseball bat and it jarred them into a hill you know maybe this endless supply of, of cheap uranium isn't it's not endless anymore and i'm wondering whether the current challenges that we're seeing with the space are maybe not the full-blown bat to the to the to the back uh that maybe it was in 2006, but maybe it's sort of a wake-up call to say, okay, um, I, as a buyer, I have to be concerned about supply security. I got to be scared about price and, and being very price. I wouldn't say price sensitive is the right word, but certainly uh, overall cost sensitive is something they got to be concerned about, uh, and that uh, it may not be there. So I, I don't know if this is the one. I think three months from down, down, down the road when we see. The uh, some of these you know these four key projects uh, restarted and the Kazakhs deciding they're going to get back to speed. Uh, it's really a question of, of the psychology of the buyers and where they want to be. There's certainly a lot of risk out there, so I think you're going to see um, you're going to see price movement. The question is where they see extreme price movement or whether they're going to see a, a, a level that makes sense for all sides. Uh, I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's the first, at least the first step in that direction. Well, let's talk about UEX, uh, starting with the capital structure. If you can share some information on that, and then also the major shareholders at the company, of course, and cash on hand. So the cash on hand is a very quick and easy one. We have about $1.8 million cash on hand today. Our major, we have about 391 million shares in the market today. Our major shareholder still is Cameco. They've been a shareholder since the beginning. They own just a little over 12% of the company. Our second largest shareholder is our founding CEO, uh, Steve Sorensen, and they he owns about just a little over eight and a half percent of the company. And then um, there's a there's a couple other that've been in the market. Uh, a couple of the U.S. funds that have been in the market that haven't disclosed their uh, their their holdings, and I don't know exactly how much they have, but there's two U.S. funds that have been active in the market over the last couple of years. Uh, BlackRock would be our third largest registered shareholder that I can see, uh, anyone else can see in the space. Uh, and they own about two, two and a half percent. And can you speak to your ownership in the company, yes. Roger? Can you share with us uh, what price yeah. you own the shares and how much you own? I own 186,000 shares, uh, 184,000, excuse me. Uh, and most of those shares were bought at about 52 to 56 cents. Very well. And how about key management and board members of the company? So our, our key two of our key board members, uh, Graham Thody and Mark Eaton, they own about uh, between 600 and 900,000 shares between the, uh, each. Uh, our other board members are, are probably a little bit are a little bit lower than that, owning about a, a little under 100,000 shares apiece. Our, our yeah, CFO is fairly new in the job, so she's still acquiring. She has a, a couple of tens of thousands of shares. Okay, and can you just tell us a little bit about uh, some of the board members and key management people that you see as critical to the company? Absolutely. Uh, so our, our chair, uh, Graham Thody, has been around since before the company was born. Uh, he was a part involved in Pioneer, one of the founding shareholders of UEX, and has been with us since the very beginning. Uh, he started off on the board. Uh, he actually took over from Mr. Sorensen when he retired and did the CEO job for a few years uh, before I came on, before they, they brought me on board and has stuck with the company ever since. And uh, he's a CA by background. He's involved in other companies like Silvercrest. Uh, he certainly got a very good eye and idea for in terms of ideas of things that we should be doing, 
a really good idea of sense of capital markets and and, and strategic uh, opportunities out there as well. And so he's he's one of our critical board members. Our lead director Siraj Ahuja has been uh, around since uranium was uh, was formed in the Earth's crust. He's been involved in the very beginnings of the uranium uh, industry in North in, in Canada at least anyway, uh, and seen. Uh, with his involvement uh, at one of Cameco's predecessor companies, uh, with the Japanese at uh, PNC, which was a legendary uh, uranium explorer and developer in the 80s and 90s, and uh, been involved with the Japanese uh, company JCU as a consultant ever since, but have been involved with several other junior companies. His understanding of, ura of the Athabasca uranium deposits is, is extremely useful for and valuable for the company. Uh, we have Catherine Stretch, who's uh, the VP of VP over at Troilus Gold. She is um, uh, really, has a really good understanding of strategy and things that we you know, and she's very valuable to, to the group. We have Mark Eaton, who's been involved in capital markets for, for, for 30 or 40 years, uh, time at CIBC, Lowen and Dachi McCutcheon, uh, part of the group, been involved in the Forest Manhattan Group. He understands capital markets and has plugged in like nobody else that I've had the pleasure of working with. And so, um, yeah, and we have a fantastic CA, uh, head of the odd committee, Emmett McGrath, who's been involved in all sorts of financial companies as well, with credit unions and such. Um, they all bring very different skill set to the team and all very valuable. And Roger, what is the 2020 remaining capital consumption estimated at? And what is the company doing to conserve capital, given the market conditions that we have in front of us, both still in the uranium sector and then also now in the broad market? And do you plan to raise capital in the year remaining? So right, what we're doing in the, on the capital front is, well, first of all, we reduced the amount of programs going back into November of last year. Uh, we've been extremely busy, although maybe not as busy in terms of money spent as some of our peer companies, but in terms of work done, easily as busy as most of them. And that's because of the shallow nature of programs. We get a lot more work done for the same buck. So we cut back on the amount of work we were doing last year because the steer price was was relatively low and that had been in the historical past. So we have about another $800,000 worth of committed requirements under the flow through Canadian flow through uh, process that we're going to do this year. And that's going to be at Christie Lake on drilling our, our, our North Target area. But we have done as we've, from a capital point of view, is that we're definitely cut anything that's discretionary whatsoever has been cut from our budgets. Um, we're also cutting back with in terms of the amount of, of things that we can, we are doing um, when it comes to work in the field to the absolute minimum. And then we'll be looking at another, if things continue, we'll be looking at other ways to cut cash as well. But we're fine, we're, we're projecting ourselves well into next year. Uh, will we look at uh, at opportunities to raise money in the rest of the year? I think there's you always look because you never know what uh, what the wind what the world will bring. And with the run up in uranium in the last week and a half or two, subject to all these announcements that have come out with Kazakhstan and Cigar Lake, people are certainly interested in talking to us about raising money or, or providing an opportunity for them to invest. So we listen, but doesn't mean we are going to do anything. Appreciate you uh, sharing that information with us. And how has COVID uh, impacted the, the UEX work at this point? And are you seeing field disruptions out there with your projects? And are there lead time issues arising with some of the labs, uh, the different service providers in Canada? I would be surprised if they're not uh, issues with the laboratories. Um, uh, quite frankly, we use the Saskatchewan Research Council because they're one of the few uranium uh, labs out there that are licensed to move to received uranium samples uh, and they probably have the best system. So uh, 
for what we do. Um, so we haven't seen, you know, for us, strangely enough, our drilling program ended uh, in the first couple of weeks of March before things really took off on COVID. So it had very little impact on our active field operations. Uh, we did have some a group in the field doing geophysics at Christie Lake. They started in, early, in, in late February. And they came out just about a week and a half or so ago, but because they're in the middle of uh, a very remote area, they were very safe. Uh, but they're in minimal contact with the outside world. But I, what I do think is going to happen, particularly in Saskatchewan, I can't speak for other in, industries, is it's yeah, a very big concern for not just UEX. Uh, you've seen it with, with Cameco's announcements. I think their, their motivations are going to be similar and probably higher you know, higher profile for sure than ours will be. And, and our peer companies through Saskatchewan Mining Association, and that is, you know, one, um, We've been declared uh, an admissible in the province, uh, the equivalent of what would be an essential service, the money supply chain and exploration included. So we have the ability to do what we would like to do when we'd like to do it. But we're very concerned about our stakeholder interactions, particularly with communities in the north. Uh, we have that duty to consult uh, scenario uh, that works well for all the stakeholders. Um, and I think what our industry and what we're concerned about is interacting with communities who are in remote communities up north. Their their healthcare infrastructure isn't anywhere like you see in the south or in other parts of the of the country or in parts of North America. So they're much more susceptible to the virus, uh, and we don't want to see them. Uh, have stakeholders. Yeah, we don't want to be the groups that would bring the, the virus into the community or be perceived as doing such. So our plan was to go back in the field and do our drilling in, in June. We're probably going to wait until August now to to start that process to give time for things to to go through while we're fully permitted and we don't have to do anything to change what we do now. It's we do like to interact and, and bring people from communities to work with us. Um, we'd want to make sure that's that everyone's as fully up to speed of what's happening and, and as safe as possible. So we've delayed our summer program by two months at this point in time. We'll see where it goes from there. Well, you bring up a good point regarding medical care services and underdeveloped parts. Um, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Well, I question, think that's a lot of the motivation for, for Cameco as well. Yeah, certainly. And Cameco, this COVID uh, issue is also a I guess, for lack of better words, a, a good excuse to uh, shut off some production, but let's let's not get into that. The recent company presentation that you guys have on your website, it, it has a total land package of about 301,000 hectares. However, mm -hmm. um, in looking at some of the March and earlier filings, there was a total of about 294,000 hectares. What's going on with that difference? We had a couple of properties that... Uh, well, we had a couple of people ask us. We went from about uh, 275,000 hectares back in the fall, up to 301 and down to 290-ish now. We had a, the two small properties in the western side of the Athabasca Basin that we hadn't worked on since we staked them a couple of years ago. Expired there, the low grassroots end of things. We actually didn't invest anything more than the staking in them. So they've, they've expired. You know, we, we haven't decided whether we'll try to restake those under competitive situation, but they certainly weren't any of our core projects. Um, if you look at that one, uh, our, our presentation, you see there's a slide there that shows the stages of our projects. Those would have been on the far left of the pure grassroots end of things. And we staked those a couple of years ago when we thought the industry was, was interested in moving and that they could have been an opportunity for us to, to partner up with somebody else to work those projects at a grassroots level. Um, and being as the rainy industry has been as tough as it's been over the last few years, uh, while we could have found potential partners for those, the, the challenge for us 
we have our portfolio is far too large for a junior company and the, the objective is on some of those grassroots products is to bring partners in to to do some of that work but if those partners can't fund themselves then there's no sense doing deals in a market where they can't fund themselves and so considering the cost of holding those products is really really small to almost nothing uh, it's very easy for us to hold them for a couple of years and when the market does turn the beautiful part about being around as long as we have and having these products for as long as we have is we have some of the best land that new partners could come in and partner with us on it would give them a leg up on some of their peer companies and so the, the very low priority projects that we staked a couple of years ago would be the lowest of our priority projects and we let those ones go understood and speak to that for just a moment that brings up another question joint ventures the joint venture model that you guys have applied a little bit to your projects is that something you guys fully intend on continuing to try to take advantage of going forward when it comes to the current joint ventures we have yes absolutely and we'll be working with our partner rano to, to redo some of the things we've learned at shake creek which i'd love to talk to you a little bit more about uh whether it's a, a joint venture approach on our grassroots products that we'd be looking to be the vendors of or whether it's a right sale within with for, for cash or shares probably more shares component we did a similar deal like that with blacklight a couple of years ago with alx resources uh yes we want to see more of our project portfolio at the the grassroots level working and so we're looking at any of the opportunities that make sense and they vary depending where we are in the market cycle Yes, and I want to talk first about the key focus projects, of which I suspect are Horseshoe Raven, uh, Christie Lake, Shea Creek, and West Bear. Just go and overview the status of those, uh, I guess, four projects. So, so Horseshoe Raven's probably our most developed project. It's it's ready to move forward. We've had a PEA done on it, and we we started the process a few years ago on, on finishing a pre-feasibility study on it. We didn't uh, we did we cancel that when the market. Uh, sort of continued to, to go on the downswing. We've done some work on it uh, a couple of years ago, and one of the biggest challenges we have, uh, the Horseshoe Raven's a, a relatively low grade by Athabasca standards project, but the beautiful part is it's off the edge of the basin, and so there's no sandstone cover, and it could be, and because it's lower grade, we don't have, and it's off the basin, we don't have the water issues, or we won't, we wouldn't anticipate having the water issues about having sandstone over top of our heads. Uh, and it can be mined conventionally because it's lower grade. So if you stock the same deposit in Wyoming, people will be going, oh, wow, look at this great opportunity that's in front of us. And it compares very favorably to some of the conventional mining opportunities you'd see potentially out there in Wyoming or Arizona. However, being lower grade, one of the biggest challenges with the Athabasca Basin is tailings and, and, our, and our regulator, the federal regulator, uh, has preference of seeing these, these tailings go into old open pits, which is a fantastic solution. But tailing space at the existing mills is like gold because you want to protect that for and and if you're some of those companies you want to protect that space because it's expensive to put together a tailings facility so we looked at the because it's lower grade it would take up more volume per pound in the tailings facility and it's been a challenge to get a, a toll milling agreement in place um and we have we, we can make an argument that that horseshoe raven we're right next door to the, the mill at rabbit lake the Campbell's rabbit lake mill, and we we have an open pit that would be a beautiful tailings facility for them but they have their challenges right now with their own stuff uh as you as everyone's well aware so we looked at the opportunity of saying well why don't we look at this as a heat leach opportunity uh thing and we've done some heat leach testing and it's come out probably far exceeding what our expectations would have been and so the next step for us is to do a, a bench scale heat leach study and that's going to be you know that's a five to ten million dollar uh or more uh test 
which the market's not ready for us to do right yet. So we've, we're waiting for the market to tell us, okay, let's start to move that project into the, towards development stage. And we think it will move fairly quickly because the milling issue isn't, a, isn't the same as it would be for a higher grade deposit, nor is a CapEx gonna be nearly as high. Our Shea Creek project is gonna be our longer term project. It's, it's the original discovery after Cuff Lake in the Western Basin, uh, where all the, the news has been made in the last couple of years. Um, one of the things that intrigues me about that project and one of the reasons why I came to CAM or from the two UX in the first place is that when I look at that project and go, well, we've got all this, you know, 95 million pounds of uranium there, but the pot has not ever been closed off and the environments where we're finding the highest and best grades of deposits aren't tested within the footprint of the existing deposits. So uh, we see at Shea Creek, some you know, at Kiana, which was the sort of the plum of what we found there in the in the in the last discovery cycle, was basement hosted deposits that similar to what you're seeing in other basement hosted deposits. And then coming up to the unconformity and having a classic unconformity deposit like you see at Key Lake, but those Key Lake deposit trends is three kilometers long, and they've only really explored the basement for 750 meters worth. But there are holes all on that three kilometer trend, actually multiple holes are hitting mineralization in the basement and they can put it together. So our plan this year, and we've been putting it together, here's what we can do for to increase resources substantially at Shea Creek by just drilling some holes where we have mineralized holes. <laughs> uh, and we have, we've seen, we've probably identified well over 15 of these opportunities that could, any one of them could lead to the next Kiana type deposit there. So, we're working with, with Arano to put together a program for next year to take advantage of that opportunity. At uh, West Bear, uh, we just put out news this morning about our updated resource. Uh, at West Bear, uh, we have a, Canada's only primary cobalt resource there. It's something we looked into, uh, quite frankly, because we made the discovery in 2005 and 2004. Uh, looking for extensions of uranium bonds, we have a unique knowledge of what to do to find what we believe are opportunities to find cobalt nickel deposits in the same neighborhoods we're finding uranium deposits, uh, in the same systems we're finding uranium deposits, and we have a unique knowledge of that. Our goal a couple of years ago was to spin this thing into a separate entity. Uh, we're still looking to find a way to maximize the value for that asset, and we believe long-term it doesn't uh, won't stay in the UVX uh, fold, but right now it's not the right time. Uh, we could spin it out or sell it at any time, but the idea is to make is to create value for shareholders, and if uh, we had a lot of people saying, when's this been upcoming? And I said, well, when 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 do your shareholders benefit from it? from it? And what I mean by that is that we could you could spun it out last year and your shareholders would own 15 to 20% of the post-financed company. I don't think that's very fair to existing shareholders who took all the risk. So when the rate cobalt market is a little more robust, we'll look at those opportunities. Uh, our horseshoe or Hurricane Bay project is what I like to think of as it's it's the lowest hanging fruit to look for a basement host deposit in the Athabasca Basin. We're in the infrastructure blessed part of the, we have the highway, the power lines crossing over it. We bound up to two uranium mills uh, that are you know, right now, I guess both of them are in suspension right now, but they're operable. We're looking at generally less than 50 meters of sandstone cover. And the way that things were explored for right up to almost the present day, if you look for classic unconformity deposit drill at the bottom of the sandstone, and if you hit it, you were great, you moved on. And if you hit mineralization below it in the basin, who cares? Move on. And so what we've been able to do with the 1,800 holes on the Hidden Bay property is sit there and say, oh, where did we find hot spots 
is every one of these basement deposits has a signature in sandstone. Can we find, or do we have in our existing database, which is also digital paper and actually almost all the drill holes ever drilled in the property, and combine that information, look for basement opportunities. And we identified probably 13 or 14 of those. So those are, are relatively low risk based on potential opportunities. Will they all work out? Well, no, clearly not. But I would rather be looking, as an investor, I'd rather be looking for the next uh, basement deposit to be found in infrastructure plus world, in a place where we know that we should be looking in a 100 meter wide area, not a 10 kilometer wide area. If you're looking at a pure grassroots project, you have this envelope of 10K, where do I start? We're going, ah, we got smoke, we got fire, we need to look right here. And I think when when the mark when when uranium markets are on the upswing, we'll be able to fund the testing of more of those than you know, they're sitting quite honestly in our portfolio because we can't test them. We have two other projects that have mineralized holes on them that we can't even think about working on them for Real Lake and Black Lake uh, at this point in time. But it's all for a day that when uh, when the markets do move, we'll be able to move our development projects forward and do something with our grassroots projects. And look, but right now we're focused on that discovery in the mid stage to hotspot type portfolio that nobody else has. They'd be flat, all four of those projects are flagships for any of our peer companies. And tell us about Christie Lake briefly, and then I want to come back just for a moment to West Bear. So Christie Lake bounds right up against the MacArthur River property. In fact, MacArthur River, Camago's MacArthur property surrounds us on three sides, like the southwest, the southeast, and the northeast. And the trend that hosts MacArthur River, the P2 fault corridor, crosses right over under our property, and we have three deposits to, to find there today to, with 20, just under 21 million pounds of resource. So it's not yet big enough to, to go. And what, what struck us when we first started the, the program is we said we had a plan, and right off the bat we realized the plan, well, the plan is still valid. Um, before we can even start the plan, we have to look at what was overlooked that we wouldn't have thought would have been overlooked when we picked up the property. And historically, explorers look for the graphitic, they try to hit the graphitic package of the end conformity, and that's where you find your classic deposits. And lots of them are being found there, but there's enough of them being found just to offer beside them uh, those packages, those graphitic packages, and that wasn't tested. And so by just looking where the structures are moving, where they come to the end conformity, not where the graphic comes to conformity, we made the Aurora discovery in 2017. And we were pretty excited in 2018 and 2019. We said, oh, you know what? We have three deposits and we know across the property boundary uh, two kilometers away perfectly a long strike is another sniff of uh, our partner our major shareholder chemical made a pretty interesting discovery on their side of the property boundary at the same time as ah, this is just like what we see in almost all the other uranium systems trends of little little deposits along a trend kind of like pearls on a string so we'll just drill up that trend it can be and we'll find more and we were very shocked in 2018 and early 2019 when we didn't. In fact, the system died. And that's some that, that's the, the system that forms these deposits just dissipated. And that's almost unheard of to see donut holes in the system like that. And we did some work last year and said, oh, we learned that the system might be offset by a fault structure. So it's offset, it's a northeast trending system, it might be offset by 150 meters, but it still lines up with the deposits there. And we did some work. We have uh, this year to sort of help us refine find finer tune the targeting for our summer program but last year's drilling led us to be really excited because we're seeing all the signs we need to see in that offset that we were thinking about that are so much better than what we found along the main trend that we thought was originally where we needed to be 
and so we're pretty excited to go back in there this year and drill those targets uh, with, with our summer program. You're getting substantial enrichment of the sandstone, which is always found around deposits. We're seeing substantial hydrothermal alteration, which you see around the three deposits we have, plus what you see down even to the south on the on the MacArthur property. So this just needs to we just need to drill. Those, those are probably one of the highest priority targets. So that's our highest priority target in the basin, but would be in anyone else's portfolio by far their highest portfolio target opportunity as well. Hey, Roger, can you speak to the news release that you just mentioned? I haven't looked at that. Can you give us a little more overview of those results that just came out? And then I understand it at West Bear that there's a satellite uranium deposit there along with the cobalt nickel discovery that's occurred. And then also, if you guys sell off or spin out that the nickel cobalt assets, will the uranium deposit remain with you guys or, or how will that work? Well, I'll talk about the deposits first, I guess. Uh, yes, there's the, the there's a small uranium deposit there called the Westbury Uranium Deposit. It's still about a million and a half pounds at uh, one point, uh, a little over one percent. Uh, and so it's probably and it's but the shallowest opportunity in the entire basin. Um, it's no, it's 13 to 25 meters from surface, um, and it's a classic unconformity deposit, being that ribbon at the end conformity. But alone on its own is probably not enough to go. But the same system. That form that deposit, the same structural and hydrothermal systems extend to the east where we get the cobalt deposit. And so this is a first because people have used cobalt and nickel to find uranium deposits in the basin for, for 30 plus years or more. Uh, but what they haven't done is say, oh, we got an interesting cobalt sniff, maybe we should use it to find a cobalt deposit. And that's what we've done at West Bear. So today's results, we've grown the, res the, the resource from, from just a little over 3 million pounds to a little over 5 million pounds. It's not big enough to, de to develop on its own. Uh, we know that uh, we're probably maybe halfway to where we need to be, but we have several other opportunities just within the property area itself. Uh, we looked at one of those this winter with a drill program at the Upperville Target, about two kilometers to the north on the same geological structures that uh, host the West Bear Cobalt Nickel. And while we didn't find the next Cobalt Nickel deposits, we've, you know, uh, geologists get excited because the system, we're seeing an active system that looks like it could lead to something, but we did find something that would jump, make investors jump up and down. But it's validating exactly the process that we're using. And we think that we can turn with not just on our own, we see lots of opportunities on West Bear with our other portfolio projects to find these cobalt nickel discoveries, uh, as well as other places in the basin as well. Uh, but it's something no one's ever looked at. So I think that's the value proposition for, for our investors is we've proved that it can be done. And we used, we did it on one of the smallest systems in the Athabasca Basin. What happens when we go to bigger ones? Can you speak just a little bit more about the news release that you guys had come out as far as the, the results and how that deposit's starting to shape up? Uh, yeah, so we, we I think we've we probably defined that deposit uh, as well as can be as, a, as an indicated resource at this stage. Five million pounds is probably not enough to, to yet develop on its own. Uh, so we probably need to find the next satellite deposit in the neighborhood to, to help us move with that for move that forward. The work that was done on the on the drilling to the north of that, like I said, it found all the indications that were in the right neighborhood, but didn't find the mineralization or didn't find mineralization yet. But it is open ended, so we're pretty excited that we were able to to learn things about these cobalt deposits that nobody else knows about and apply okay. it elsewhere and in the neighborhood as well. So yes, we don't have uh, we don't have an economic cobalt deposit today. Is a piece of what will become maybe a part of a satellite of systems we can put together. Not even a district size play, but a property size play. 
Can you speak to the the plan for the rest of this year and going into 2021? Where's the focus going to be? Just give us a, a breakdown of what you guys are going to be focused on over the next, say, 18 months. It's definitely going to be focused on the uranium sector, I and mean, that was our plan up front going into this year. We did a modest little bit of work at uh, at Umber Global, uh, you know, on the West Bear property because it was just it was too compelling to leave. But focus will be at Christie Lake for sure, drilling the targets that are Aurora North, where that offset occurs. But we also have uh, mineralized coal from last year's program that needs to be followed up on, and an emerging new target uh, called uh, the B South Trend, which we'll be looking at as well. And then we'll be probably working hard to get Shade Creek uh, going for 2021 with a new program to expand resources there. So that's going to be our key focuses over the next 18 months. Okay, Roger, and if you had to pick, do you like the west side or the east side of the basin? Um, that's a, that, that's kind of like, do you like chocolate or you like strawberry? Um, I like the east side of the basin from a threshold of the economic threshold is probably a little easier to get past because the infrastructure is already there. Um, however, uh, your chance to find elephants on the west side uh, are huge, as we've seen. Uh, and, of course, we've been intimately involved in one of them. So I think more than anything else, uh, yeah, you can pick, you can near certain split in Harris, uh, quite frankly. I I would lean towards the eastern side because the, the economic threshold to get to, to an economic or to a deposit, an exploitable deposit is probably lower because of the infrastructure. And what do you think about, just a side question, up north? Do you guys have some stuff going on up north or at least some, some greenfield stuff? Do you think that there's good potential up north? Yeah, I think actually uh, when you look at where we are on the north rim or on the east side, uh, it's all road accessible. And actually, some of the cheapest exploration in the Athabasca Basin is uh, on our two projects, uh, our three projects actually, up on the North Rim. And that's because it's road accessible. It's almost exploitable 24/7. You don't, you don't hear 365 days a year pretty much, and you don't have to bring a camp because you have uh, two towns there that uh, help you with the things like, for example, there's grocery stores and there's a gas station, and you don't have to build a camp because you can use the, the existing lodges that are up there. Uh, and it's still road relatively easily road accessible to the infrastructure on the east side. Uh, as you go farther west and you get over Lake Athabasca, things become much, much more challenging. Uh, from a, from a, if you were successful, the threshold to person, the threshold to build an economic deposit is probably even higher, much higher than on the west side. So we've tended to avoid anything we couldn't get to on the north shore that's not road accessible. And let's talk big picture strategy for just a moment. Let's just assume that the market does move and you guys continue to progress your projects. What's the end game for the company? Are you guys looking to be acquired or do you guys see that you're going to build out one of these more advanced assets and get into production scenario? I think there's always the hope that someone would like to buy you out, but if you're in the uranium space and that's your hope, you're going to be in a difficult spot for a very long period of time. And that's because the, the players, like there's there's much smaller industry to play to, to buy you out. You know, it's not gold or copper where there's there's dozens and dozens of producers out there. You have a handful of producers that are out there that are capable of doing things uh, that can get you to that, to, to the buyout point. And when things are tough, they they suffer equally as badly. So your your chemicals, your your ranos, your, you know, they, they struggle in the current markets and they're not positioned to, to make changes 
as you'd like to see them make changes. And they've been around a long time. They're very, they're very cautious approach uh, to things. So I think it's just even if it doesn't matter what your commodity is, but particularly in uranium, you have to at least work down the path that you're going to, you're going to move into production. And if someone makes you the offer that you can't refuse, then you have to do that. Otherwise, if you're going to say I'm waiting for someone to buy us out, you could wait an awful long time. And speak to why potential investors who are listening should consider UEX as one of their uranium exposure vehicles, Roger. What would you say to them? Because we provide you with portfolio. We, we have development-ready projects, we have grassroots projects, and we have that portfolio in between. Uh, so you can invest in a, port, in a production company, and you will see when the price of uranium moves, you'll move with it, uh, as will we, because we have that backstop, that, that underpinning of the resource base behind us. Uh, and yes, you could, uh, but you know, historically, the companies that have done the best in the old cycles are the ones that make new discoveries. So you want a company that has a portfolio that, of that opportunity as well. And I like our portfolio the best because we're sitting on hot spots that are just waiting to be followed up on. And, this, and it's not because we, we don't want to follow up on them. It's, it's market related. And we can only do so much work in the current markets. So well, we have the ability to make those, those discoveries as well as anybody else with fairly low risk. And most of those opportunities in the Houston Basin. And what is the best way for the audience to reach out to you and the company? So we have our website is uexcorp.com, so uexcorp.com. Uh, you can always uh, reach out to us on the phone. Uh, our phone number is on our, our website as well, 306-979-3849. Uex at uexcorp.com is our email. Uh, you can always reach out to us anytime. Uh, I, I tend to uh, to try to respond as, as quickly as possible, and sometimes it's a little bit busier than others. Uh, the last week's been pretty busy for us because uh, things are changing so quickly. But uh, but I do try to do my best to get in hold of everybody I can. As long as you ask a question that I can I answer that's not a disclosure issue, I'll answer as quickly as I can. Well, Roger, I appreciate the time, and we look forward to watching uh, progress over at UEX. And uh, good luck to you. Take care. Well, thank you very much and appreciate your uh, taking time to talk to us.